You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Welcome to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This episode is produced at the KZOM facilities in Oleander, Oregon. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by Caprina Menthol Cigarettes for Goats. The smell of fine smoked Turkish tobacco blended with Moroccan mint will cover up the smell of most domestic goats. And goats love the taste. Nothing like the look of a goat relaxing after a hard day of being milked and grazing with a caparine or caparine light. Help support the show by rate, reviewing, and subscribing. Tell your friends about it. And check out the show notes and the links. It's how you can find out what our guests are up to, and you can find out what we're up to, find our merch, find our Patreon, and find the source of all the RSS feeds and all that fun stuff. All right, here's Dave and DB. Hey everyone, it's me, DB, and this guy over here, it's Dave, and welcome to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the relaunch, the pilot, I don't know what to call this. (laughs) Um, A continuation? A continuation, okay, all right. Uh, Yeah, no, uh, Apple is uh, slowly eating all the old episodes, Uh, the old episodes slowly disappear, and we're replacing it with new episodes, and... You know, um, let's see. I, I, I think that this has something to do with the Flash running faster than time and everything sort of falling in and on itself. But I was going to say that's just me. Ken Height messing with time travel again. Oh, OK. Yeah. But uh, speaking of Ken Height, hopefully we're going to have Ken Height on the show talking about stuff sometime soon. And uh, let's see. What other announcements do I have? Oblivion's Fourth of July celebration. Uh no fireworks this year due to uh, how, how dry it is, uh, but they will be playing Dark Side of the Moon movie and soundtrack at the same time while blaring uh, klaxon alarms and uh, strobe lights. So, and, and, and they are also offering, a for those who drink alcohol, an alcohol discount. For Fourth of July, it's called being comfortably numb. Yes, yes, and also uh, thank you all for coming back and listening. So check that out, and uh, yeah, no, we will have a booth at Oblivion's. So uh, we'll have the earplugs, and also we'll have the uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos stickers and the giant stack of Radio Free Oleander stickers that we still have. And and Stinky Duck, our local band, will be playing. Oh yeah. So so Dave, uh, we we have some pretty cool stuff. We have uh, uh, an interview. Would you would you like to introduce uh, not introduce the interview, but uh, could you tell me please who the interview is with? So it is with uh, Chris Milligan. All right. And he runs a website and podcast. It has, because of COVID-19, been on hiatus for the last year or so, but it is called um, Shadow Over Portland. And it basically focuses on the horror genre, but events, and not just Portland, the entire Pacific West Coast. Uh, things like film, uh, independent movie releases, uh, book signings, um, you know, uh, conventions. Um, and it, it, because of because of last year, it's been on hiatus. But yeah. now, as things are actually happening, 
he's back sharing it. And we're going to talk a little bit about we met, uh, you know, well, I got to really know him at the, the Lovecraft Film Festivals. So, you know, we just sort of basically talk a little bit about Lovecraft and movies. Nice, nice. I, I, I know Chris not super well or anything. I just know him from around Portland, around the Lovecraft Festival, around the Horror Festival, and around Portland horror in general. I have social anxiety unless I'm on stage or and there's a microphone in front of me or someone sticks a camera in my face. So... I don't know, Dave. Maybe, maybe when we go to festivals, you'll just have to pretend you have a camera, so I'll like be super chatty with everyone. <laughs> uh, I'll pretend like I'm on Mission Impossible. I'll put like a little dot on my glasses so it look like I've got got a, a hidden camera there. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. And uh, let's see. Uh, after that, we have a uh, Dave's corner of the podcast. And uh, what what's Dave going to be talking about in Dave's corner of the podcast, Dave? So I am going to be talking about a lesser-known fact of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh-huh. We, we all know, you know, he maybe didn't have some of the greatest personality or beliefs. You can say that but again. <laughs> he, he was basically a flame troll before there were flame trolls. Okay. And he gets into this argument with this writer— that actually leads to the Cthulhu mythos, uh-huh. but the fact of him returning from writing after being a child. That next time that you're on Facebook yeah. in that that just conservative, uh, just bratty troll is trying to tear you apart, just remember, he might be the next H.P. Lovecraft. Um, let's see, what else do we have going on in the show? And uh, we've got some readings at the end of the show. Uh, we'll be talking about that, or I'll be talking about that at the end of the show. And then, of course, uh, next week, uh, we're going to be talking about the ACLO language. Uh, hopefully, we'll have Ken Hyde on the show talking about that. And, of course, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, check the show notes, find out what we've got going on and what we've got coming up, and everything like that. Love, love, does not mean all right, Dave. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit, Dave. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about what is Lovecraftian. So me and and this is this is maybe the ultimate your mileage may vary situation. Sure, sure, sure. But to me, there's two things. There are basically Lovecraftian tropes and cosmic horror tropes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're not always the same. No. So so and so obviously the, the things that use one of those two or both, sometimes there is overlap of the tropes. Yeah. Um so one of and and maybe I should say Lovecraftian themes Mm-hmm. And cosmic horror tropes. Yeah. So Lovecraft's themes are this thought, this this meta horror that the universe not only is is this cold, uncaring place. That yes, there are these incredibly powerful creatures that have a science that we call magic. Mm-hmm. But not only do Cthulhu and Azathoth 
not only, you know, they don't care about you. Mm-hmm. Sure, they will swat you like a fly if you get in their way, but it's just they don't care. They're one of the strongest uh, Lovecraftian tropes is that there is no benign, loving God that yeah. knows you and cares about you. There's other tropes, you know, the Lovecraft or Lovecraft themes, you know, uh, could be, you know, that that which is inside us. Mm-hmm. You know, he he was dreadfully afraid that his father had basically passed syphilis onto him when he was born. Yeah. And there really doesn't seem to be any evidence of it, you know, but his dad died in a mental hospital mm-hmm. for, uh, you know, syphilis. So, you know, it was a good thing for him to maybe be concerned about. So there's these themes that Lovecraft created. And then there's cosmic horror tropes, these ultra terrestrials, uh, you know, the, the new England village. Mm-hmm. And I think the two are sort of mixed together and, and often called Lovecraftian. Yeah. So, so what is your definition of Lovecraftian? I would have to say Lovecraftian for me is a location-based genre, uh, a time and location-based genre that closely mirrors Gothic literature with a science fiction element, a, a, an otherness, a strangeness, an undescribable horror that you know that's although i do feel like undescribable horror and i feel like a lot of people say that just feels like cheating please describe it so that we can at least be like yeah that's horrible (laughs) definitely and and i think there are definitely i think um some very good homages Mm -hmm. you know pistache to to lovecraft there's some really bad ones out there. Oh, sure. But just because you're copying Lovecraft's style doesn't make it Lovecraftian. No, 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 no. Just because you bust out the thesaurus doesn't make it Lovecraftian. Just because you have, like, I don't know, a weird incestuous family out in the woods. Yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not Lovecraftian, even though it does have elements that do remind us of Pitcher in the House and... uh the doom that came to no no wait a minute uh the Dunwich horror <laughs> the Dunwich horror or, yeah. or the the book in the house and yeah 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 uh there's 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 a horror out there that is very very like has like Lovecraftian elements and and I've definitely showcased some things like I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I try and tie it to book in the house so I can be like yeah no cannibals that live in the woods it's awesome there it's it's great horror but it's not lovecraftian but it is horror and it's 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 a kind of horror that lovecraft really tied into uh bits and pieces here and there but lovecraftian horror i definitely have to say is like anything that's really kind of like uh anything from like i want to say um the terrible old man to like stuff like uh i don't know um reanimator and and just just like Ah, uh, I don't know. Would you consider Reanimator Lovecraftian? Um, the, I'm I'm assuming you're talking about the movie. Oh, oh no, no, I was I was I was talking about the uh, the uh, story. Oh, her, her, okay, Herbert West. Herbert West Reanimator. Yeah, yeah. So that's it. So so yes. Uh, up until you asked me that question, I default everything. 
Lovecraft wrote was Lovecraftian mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. um so with the exception of stuff that say Derleth wrote and put Lovecraft's name on it. Uh-huh. But yeah, what about you know, are you familiar with uh Sweet Armagine? Oh yeah. You know, that's his attempt that's Lovecraft's attempt at a or, or Sweet Armagard, excuse me. Uh that's his attempt to write a sweet love story. Yeah. Hint she's an attempted murderer. Okay. Uh, spoiler, she's an attempted murderer. So, yes, I would have said that it was very Lovecraftian because he wrote it. Now, the and, and I think Chris and I sort of mentioned this, he wrote it for Homebrew, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which was a satire magazine. Yeah. So, so Herbert West, Reanimator, is a satire yeah. of of what Lovecraft saw as the horror genre at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so again, this is sort of, you know, everybody's personal headcanon. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would say it is because it was written by Lovecraft. And there are some things I think that are really Lovecraftian. Okay. You know, again, spoilers at the end, the wall breaks in and all these terrible mishmash, the animated monsters come through. Yeah. But when you go back, the wall's perfect. I think that's very Lovecraftian. Oh, yeah. But there's obviously some stuff that he didn't use in other stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, no. uh, so that's my roundabout way of saying yes, but I guess there are some stories that are more Lovecraftian than others. All right. All right. So the story that I always thought, and as far as I know, this is a complete Lovecraft story. Uh-huh. The one that I thought that was sort of the break from all of his other writing mm-hmm. uh, is the evil clergyman. Okay. Oh, I don't know if you heard, but Ralph disagreed yeah, with me. I heard of Ralph the Rooster again. Yeah. So, yeah. so, 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 evil clergyman for those. You know, the the protagonist goes in, and he's got ultraviolet light. It's almost like if you take out the comedy. It's almost like Lovecraft is writing Ghostbusters. He's got this science and he's got this tech and he's going to get rid of the spirit using ultraviolet light. Yeah. And, and so, so yes, I guess if you have a sliding scale of Lovecraftian Lovecraft, mm-hmm. I've always felt this one was sort of, and he wrote it one of the last stories he wrote, oh, okay. you know? Uh, and so I always thought that if he had lived, he would have gone more into sort of this science versus the supernatural. Yeah. So, and, and as far as I know, and, and I'm sure that that uh, Ken's going to tell you next week, I can't believe David said that Lovecraft wrote this one by himself. But, but <laughs> as far as I know, this was one of, this is one that he wrote. He did not, um, he, he, he didn't, you know, uh, ghost write. Um, but to me, that one always seemed to have a different feel. And I love the story. It's a great story. Uh, it's got sort of a, a twisty ending. But to me, it's always been sort of the 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 least Lovecraftian of the Lovecraftian stories. Right. Huh. I, I, I just have to say, my one of my favorite like Lovecrafty, Lovecrafty stories is Dagon. I just, I love Dagon. Dagon is amazing. Dagon is just like... I don't know. I I feel like Lovecraft could have just written Dagon, and I would have been happy. 
Nothing else had to be written. Just Dagon. <laughs> and I, I and, believe and that's one of his first ones. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say. I think it's 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 one of the early ones that just kind of like there's 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 several uh, Lovecraft stories that are kind of like proto stories for later stories. Not not ones that Durleth just took a thing and then like wrote a story around and then said Lovecraft, but like actually like later Lovecraft that you know more fleshed out stories, longer stories. Enough of us talking. Here's Dave uh, talking with Chris. With special guest Ralph the Rooster. Okay. And you're listening to the Farmer Dave Show on Radio. For... Oh wait, we don't have to do that anymore. Where, where, where am I? What? Oh, okay. This is David, and we're doing an interview for the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, and this is our first interview since uh, we went back to that name, and I'm excited about who we got. Because he's just a, a person of first. He was, among other things, the first guest on Monster Kid Radio. And look at how well they're doing. Oh, so, uh, oh so my God. Get blessed by this. So we have Chris McMillan. Chris, for those of you uh, people who are listening, maybe don't know you, uh, can we get you to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, my name's Chris McMillan. I'm the writer and publisher of The Shadow Over Portland, which you can find at shadowoverportland.com blogspot.com um what i do is i do reviews um but the main thing is i try to list all the sci-fi fantasy horror films happening in local theaters you know i mean regal theaters amc they get enough of a budget no i try to do all the festivals and, and conventions and list them on my site so people have a thing where they can go and, you know, find out what's happening. And oh my God, thanks for the unrealistic expectations here. <laughs> yeah, but, but at least things are happening now. Oh yeah, no, no. I went on hiatus for about a year because nothing was happening as everyone knows because of you know, COVID, and it's still affecting us. You know, I mean, there's still theaters that are like, you have to wear a mask unless you're eating popcorn or drinking a drink. You know, you have to buy advanced tickets. You have to sit at those seats. And the reason they want to do that is because, you know, if you're sitting at the seats, they know what to clean up. And, you know, I'm, I get that. And I try to make sure that everyone know. okay, on every theater site right now that is showing something, there's a link. And please just click up, click on the link, find out what they require, and be cool. You know, if they want you to wear a mask, wear a mask. Um, you know, um, Derek, Monster Kid Radio, um, and I went to see the amusement park, the George Romero film. What was the it? the I, lost they, movie. Yeah, I think it was last weekend, and the Kickins is like, okay, you're in these seats, please sit in these seats, because then we know what to sterilize, you know, and, and take care of. And it's like, yeah, no problem. Um, you know, I mean, we're... Tr- and for those okay. of you who heard that, <laughs> so we are still broadcasting from a live working farm. Nothing's changed there. I love there. that. I love that. And, and I will. I, okay. Once your rooster calms down, 
I will tell your listeners, if you hear a whirring uh, sound in the background, that's my AC, because it's, it's Portland, and it's hot as blazes out here. So, yeah. That heat dome. That, oh, that yeah. Heat dome. When we're recording this, they're expecting it to get up to 111 over the weekend. I know. That's insane. <laughs> but, you know, hey. We're talking Lovecraft. Insanity yes, is are. perfectly fine. <laughs> yes, we are. And, and so, you know, um, as we promised, the, the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, A, you don't have to be a people, so any Migos that are listening to this, you don't have to turn off. And we're not oh, join in. Gonna, yeah. In fact, we're not, same thing, if you're, if you're a gug or a ghoul, you know, you can listen. We're not exclusive to people. That and, you know, we're not just going to be talking about Lovecraft on the show, but we are now. And one of the things we're going to talk about, well, is Lovecraft in movies and TV. Now, now H.P. Lovecraft, you know, the mythos, it, it's infinitely unfilmable. Uh, or air quotes there, unfilmable. Are there any examples that you think of, of movies or TV shows, Lovecraft, that are really good? Um, yeah, there's a couple. First of all, let's be honest. Um, Richard Stanley's The Color Out of Space is amazing. Um, Agreed. I, I will say, and this is just my bias, that the first time I saw it, which was two years ago, the last time the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival actually had, you know, was in person, um, I was kind of turned off in the first half hour and I couldn't figure out why because the rest of the movie is so brilliant and it's like, why am I so disconnected to this? So I got the Blu-ray, I put it back in and I'm gonna be as spoiler free as possible, but yeah, I, I, I think it's kind of in the trailer, so, you know, um, but I'm going to be as spoiler-free as possible. Um, there's a scene within the first half hour where one of the main characters has a very traumatic injury. Mm-hmm. And 24 hours later, they're going home with their wound bandaged up with a bunch of gauze and I'm like you know I, I that that kind of threw me it's like no that wouldn't happen so I'm gonna say you know that that kind of threw me but if you can get past that and I finally did it's a great adaptation of the color of space so much better than die monster die Yes, yes. Which I do love, because Nick Adams and Boris Karloff, oh yeah. But it's so much better and so much creepier. And yeah, like most Lovecraft adaptations, you have to change things. But I mean, it's, it is it is a great one. Um, that's my third. Okay, my what's number two? Number two is Reanimator. Okay. And I know a lot of people are like, well, that's not very Lovecraftian. Yeah, it's not. 
But if you read the six-part um, serial that he wrote for, was it Weird Tales? I, I don't no, remember it the was magazine. A, it, was, it was actually an amateur press, and it was called Homebrew. And it oh, was of all right. things. Of all things, it was a satire magazine. Right, and and he wrote it, I think, you know, just because they wanted something, and he was and, not and, very and, happy with and it. And for a satire audience, he was satire. He was a satirizing horror writing at the time. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, I couldn't remember, um, but what I'm going to say is, if you read the six-part serialized series the movie hits pretty much the same notes yeah um you've got um dean halsey who was resurrected in the series you've got the big athletic person you know that came and 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 you know they resurrect in you know the more you know yeah. um and well, he was an African American boxer, and that was not really cool description. But you know, I mean, there's yeah. that. Um, Doctor Hill is represented, you know, in the story. He is a fighter pilot who was decapitated, and they have his head in a bucket. And the last part of the series, you know, I'm I'm not going to spoil it because you need to read it, um, really caught the end of the movie. You know, I mean, it really followed the campy, satirical, I don't really care what I'm writing, I'm just doing this, you know, tone that Lovecraft had. Yeah, of course. You know, there's no female character and, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Um, but still, it, it hit all the notes. But for me, my favorite Lovecraft adaptation is, um, once again, Stuart Gordon, um, his Dagon, which is basically the shadow of Smith. Yes. Um, I watched that movie for the first time after seeing Reanimator and From Beyond. Um, and I was like, Oh, oh, no, 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 no. But then I rewatched it, and it's like, oh, I realized why I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Because that was the one movie to me that really caught the tone of Lovecraft endings. No one's getting out alive. Yeah. No one's coming out happy life sucks deal with it the universe and, doesn't care about you yeah and and once i got that i realized you know i mean Stuart gordon having to flesh out you know a short story um into a feature-length film had to take some liberties but still it was it kept with the tone of Lovecraft's story. It was like, yeah, this guy's screwed. I hope I can use that term on your podcast. We'll see. Um, so the audience will either hear the word you said or DB will put in this beep. 
I have a feeling since he said on the show, you'll probably let it slide. All right. All right. Fine. But, you know, I mean, he's there's no happy ending in this. Yeah. And and, you know, after watching, you know, Reanimator, which uh, was kind of goofy and silly and from beyond, which was got really goofy and silly, although it's still a great movie. Uh, you know, I mean, having this downer ending was so jarring to me after watching these Lovecraft adaptations. But then I started rereading his works and rewatched the film. And I'm like, yeah, that's the most Lovecraftian ending in it could any be. movie. Yeah. So, um, so personally, my favorite and, and, and I, I'm kind of cheating because it it wasn't it wasn't released in the movie theater, but the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society did a black and white silent version of Call of Cthulhu that oh, I love. That is a great movie. That is a great movie, and I was only going on theatrical releases. But, um, but have I you cheated. seen The Whisperer in the Darkness? So I I'm 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 ordered that one. I've not seen it yet, but I, I love the. I, I love the, the, the previews that I've seen. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's great. Both of those movies, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, do amazing work. And seriously, if, if anyone out there hasn't checked out their version of Call of Cthulhu, because, you know, I mean, you know, they shot that like it was filmed when the story was written. So it's silent. Um, yeah, you can tell there's computer graphics going on, but there's a male cultist and a female cultist and they're all, they're all copies of the same person. Yeah. And they're probably a bit more, well, wait a second. It was the twenties. So the Haynes code wasn't involved at that point, but you know, I mean, still they shot it as best they could in the style of the 20s and it is glorious and your rooster agrees with me a rooster approves <laughs> rooster approves no um, I'm I, I would love to have the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society do another oh yeah movie I, I don't know if that's going to happen I know they're expensive but if they did, oh yeah, I'm there because they do some amazing work. You know, absolutely. Now, are there any examples you think that maybe missed the mark of uh, movies uh, or that uh, Lovecraftian adaptations? You know, I, um, yeah, the early Corman ones. I really love the Haunted Palace. Yes. Um, with Vincent Price, you know, okay, it's Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace story by H.P. Lovecraft. That was a pretty good adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, and I didn't expect much from Die, Monster, Die. And I got what I expected. Yeah. But I think the one that really missed the mark was um, the Dunwich Horror with um, 
Dean Stanley and uh, Sandra D. Sandra D. The only I, movie, the only movie that Sandra D. appeared topless in. Yep. And I get they were going for the hippie vibe, but it was like, yeah, you know, I it, it, I realized that. The budget wasn't there to make Dean Stockwell. That was it. Dean Stockwell. I'm sorry, I misprinted. I, I, I got his name wrong earlier. Uh, Dean Stockwell to be a seven-foot-high goat monster. Yeah. And I know you have goats. And goats are great. Goats are great. But they but don't look like Dean Stockwell. They don't. They don't <laughs> look like Wilbur Waitley, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, it just kind of missed that mark. Um, but the nice thing is there's been so many other Lovecraftian adaptations. And, you know, I mean, you can go into movies like Alien and The Thing, and it's all Lovecraftian. In the Mouth of Madness. Mm. Yeah, that's very Lovecraftian. But I want to give a shout out to The Last winter hey, I um, have to admit I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not a, I'm not familiar with that one um I think it was um a Besson oh damn um but it's a low budget film um hang on a sec I think I have it right over here on my shelf so I can find the director because Michael Besson give me a second I need my glasses I'm sorry Oh, I'm sorry, Larry Fessenden. Fessenden. It's it's a very low budget movie taking place in, I think it's Alaska. And um, what happens is global warming is melting the permafrost, and things are appearing that shouldn't be mm. there. And it's it's great. I, I I really enjoy it because you know I mean, yeah you get the CGI creatures, but the ending shot is of the protagonist just standing outside this medical facility, and all you hear is chaos and craziness as she's standing in this snowfield that's melting. And yeah, the extended version has her has something horrible happen to her. But I think just standing there watching the snow melt and listening to everything going on, much more effective, much mm. more Lovecraftian, much more. This is not a good thing, folks than just showing anything, you know? It, it, uh, yeah. it, and that's always been a problem with me and, you know, Lovecraftian adaptations. He's always describing the indescribable. And, exactly. And, and, and it doesn't always translate well to film. Try as they might. Like I said, Richard Stanley, The Color Out of Space, did a great job trying to, you know, capture the color you can't see which if you can't see it in space you can't see it on earth but it made it so you know his 
use of the color palette was so good that you got the sense of the unearthliness about it. Now, do you think maybe, or are there some Lovecraftian tropes that you see in movies? I you kind of mentioned aliens and some others that maybe the Lovecraftian stories don't translate well, but tropes that were either invented or popularized or associated <laughs> with Lovecraft. Okay. The one trope I hate about Lovecraftian movies, just stop bringing out tentacles. Okay. You know, I mean, we get it. Lovecraft had a horror of seafood, as well as others, um, other people. Um, but, you know, I mean, Lovecraftian does not mean tentacles. Agreed. Love, you know, Lovecraftian horror means something beyond our understanding. And I think one of the good examples of that is um, Paul Anderson's Event Horizon. Okay, yeah. Because, you, I mean, a lot of it plays into the um, set designs because you've got this very Spartan-like you know, rescue ship. Yeah. And then you get onto the Event Horizon is based on, you know, Notre Dame cathedrals and stuff, and it's very gothic. You know, there's this feeling of dread that that movie manages to bring up. And, and of course, you know, in the final act, you have to have the explosions and all that. Fine. But there's this feeling of dread throughout the whole whole first two acts where it's like what is going on what you know i mean it really worked well um yeah okay the guy being blown off from the spaceship and igniting his you know air pack to get back to the event horizon I didn't yeah. buy it in Gravity. I didn't buy it in Wall-E. I didn't buy it in this one, but it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make some exceptions. They, they get a pass. Yeah, Wall-E especially, because, I mean, come on, it's Pixar. Yeah. Um, but, but I think they really captured the dread of the unknown in that movie um, in the same way in the John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness caught that dread, that there are things outside of our universe trying to break in. And, and In the Mouth of Madness is a, that'd be like number four. That's a solid movie. Yeah. You know, Event Horizon captured that same feeling it was like yeah we don't know what this thing is yeah you're saying it's hell but is it i don't know i'm waiting for pinhead to show up but whatever yeah. you know i know um you know of course it, it's based on a, a john campbell or uh short story uh but uh i think the thing captures mm -hmm. a lot of lovecraftian tropes Oh, yeah, it does. It does, because we have no idea what's out there, and when we're faced with it, we can't understand it. That's the whole thing. 
you know, that's what I love about In the Mouth of Madness and, and Event Horizon. Yeah, we're given the background. We get that these things want in. But why? Uh, what's the deal? We don't know. And, and I think a lot of movies, they're trying to make sure you get it but they don't take into account the audience's intelligence that they, they, they won't you. get it. Yeah. They're spoon feeding it. Thank you. That's perfect. Um, they're, they're trying to make sure, Oh yeah, we're going to make sure you get this even though it ruins the movie. Now let's, uh, let's maybe uh, switch this up a little bit. But let's right. say some movie executive comes up to you and says, Chris, we want you to make any Lovecraftian project. It can be Lovecraft inspired. It can be any of his stories. Don't worry about talent. We'll get you talent. Don't worry about money. We're going to throw big, giant mountains of money at you. Don't worry even about IP. We'll get any copyright you need. What are you going to do? <laughs> I've had this one fermenting in my mind for years. Seriously, I, I really have. Um, Shadow over Innsmouth. Okay. Because what I would start with is, you know, of course, it's Shadow over Innsmouth. You have to start with the ocean. So I'd have a pan of the ocean, but I would, you know, okay, CGI, thank you. Um, transition it to a desert doom. And go from there, because it's two people who went to Innsmouth and tried to hide from who they were by going into the desert away from the ocean, but they couldn't. Um, I have a whole lot more, um, mm -hmm. you know, but, you know, I mean, that would be, I mean, if I could do, folks, fund me. Um, if I could do anything, it would be the shadow over in Smith because um, that wasn't the that was the that was not the first Lovecraft story I read. The first one I read was The Rats in the Wall, which is an awesome movie, or awesome story, and it really needs to be a movie. But I have this grand idea idea for the shadow over Innsmouth that, yeah, I just can't let go. No, no, I, I would love to see that. If I had, it depends if they came to me. Some days I would say, uh, okay, I've got unlimited money. Uh, game, uh, Guillermo del Toro, uh, you and me, dude, we're doing, uh, we're doing uh, 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 Mountains of Madness. Oh, yeah. But then I think, then I think, well, if it was just me, Maybe doing like a, a lost generation between the wars version of the Hound. Oh, 
You know, where, that where could these, be interesting. Yeah. yeah where, where these two Americans and, and maybe even gender swap one or two of them, make them uh, uh, female or both female and just well, travel you know, in mean, Europe and, and raiding, raiding uh, mausoleums and stealing stuff in well, uh, it, Edwardian Europe. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, let's be honest. You know, I mean, Lovecraft never held. he's always been misogynistic. I mean, even after he was married and divorced, you you look at the novel, uh, the short story he wrote, The Thing at the Doorstep. Yeah. You know, you've got this ancient wizard who's like, I have to get out of this female body because her brain is inferior. Um, Yeah, you know, I, I... I, I love what Lovecraft wrote. I, yeah. I really do. But I also understand that it came from a very racist, very misogynistic view of the world. And there's a part of me that has to reconcile with that. And, sure. you know, I, I have actually talked to some friends of mine who are African-American is like, look, man, I love this guy's work, but he's a racist son of a gun. Yep. And they're like, do you understand? It's like, yes, I do. And his best works are based on his racism. His best works are based on his fear of intermingling and the outsiders coming in and, and, and they're like, well, I'm fine with that. You get it. You know, I, 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 I don't mean to bring up the racism card. I really don't, because that's such a hot topic. Yeah. But it's there. And I'm sorry. I don't believe his ideals softened later. I, I, I really don't. Um, it's it, it 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 gave us great stories, but we have to accept the fact that what gave us such great stories is this racist, misogynistic fear of anyone who isn't male, white. Protestant and from Providence. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry. I, I, I just, yeah, that's. It, it, it's, it's the reality that we live in. It, it is. Definitely it, is. It's, 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 it's the reality that those of us who love his writings have inherited. Yeah, you know, I love his I love his stories. I whoa, okay. the rooster, the rooster agrees. <laughs> the rooster yeah, agrees. I, 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 you know, I mean, people are like, if you could bring up someone from the dead and talk to them, you know, who would you bring up? And 
Lovecraft is not on the list because he and I would have words. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I understand that's where he got his inspiration. I, I get that. But, you know, he produced some great work as many authors of that time and times before produced great work. You just have to look at it and go, yeah, okay, that, that, the author's a bit not PC. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not. Um, I think, but, but it the is there. Thing, I think one of the greatest things that I saw was, um, I think it was Kenneth Hyde did a thing is Lovecraft a racist and it was just like yes yeah. <laughs> and that was it um, and and I will go on record to say was Lovecraft a racist yes he was that shouldn't diminish what he gave us cosmic horror you know I mean that shouldn't diminish that genre it's just that we should understand that was built off of a very racist foundation yeah and that's that's why uh, it's so great to see that that so many gay and transgender and people of color uh, are, are taking this, taking the some of the, the story parts, uh, and rejecting, not not denying the history, but rejecting the history part. Uh, and I think we see that in things such as uh, Lovecraft Country, but also uh, even that little bl- blurb in the beginning of Aquaman, where there's a copy of a. Uh, uh, you know the Dunwich horror on Aquaman's dad's table. You know, and yeah. Han, who, who is, uh, you know, the 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 director who chose that because he was so inspired as a kid growing up. But at the same point, you know, being a, a person of color, he knew what Lovecraft stood for, and he's sort well, of taking it from him and giving it to us in the 21st century. Well, and I just got. Lovecraft Country on DVD from the library, so I'm going to be watching it. Um, and I think books better. It's it's very good, but I'll just throw out the books incredible. Okay, well I want to read the book too. So you know, once I find it at a decent price used, because most of the bookstores don't have it used. Uh-uh. But you know, I mean, I I I want to see other people's interpretation. Of Lovecraft, I I want to see them saying, "Yeah, here's what we've got with this." Um, I, it's like I I okay, it's like I saw the second Candyman remake trailer today. I saw the first one, I was like, yeah, whatever. I saw the second one, I'm like, oh, wow, 
they're really trying to do something different. And that's what I'd like to see with Lovecraft. I mean, I I love the 80s Lovecraftian movies. I loved Reanimator. I love From Beyond. Um, Barbara Crampton's crying, turning into insane laughter is haunting, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to, you know, it... it that was Stuart Gordon, and he's a yeah. great director. He was a great director, God rest his soul. Um, but I would love to see someone take Lovecraft and bring it into modern times. I, I, I'm not saying, you know, let's be all, you know, whatever. I just want to see them bring it into modern times. I want to see cosmic horror without the baggage that Lovecraft has. And I think or, in the or mountains, if it does have map, the baggage, be completely honest about it and say that's a thing of the time and yeah. have the character overcome that. And and from what I understand, that's what Lovecraft Country does. It does very good, yes. Um, and I'm I, I'm excited to watch it, but I just got it a couple of days ago and then haven't had a chance because I've been working. But you know, I'll get to it. But I would like to see someone take cosmic horror, strip away the damn tentacles, and just present something that is beyond our scope of understanding. And like I said, Event Horizon, In the Mouth of Madness, they both did a really good job of that. Yes. But no one else has tried. It's always been tentacles and giant monster. Okay, okay. I will say The Mist did a good job, too. And, you know, Frank Durban's The Mist. Yes. And that ending, yeah, very Lovecraftian. It's like, yes, um, not gonna spoil it. No, no but it, it is one of the most twisted endings ever. I was, I saw that, and I'm like, oh my, what, what just happened? And and I'm sorry, Thomas James screaming at the end. Oh. Perfect. Perfect. He portrayed the pain of his decision so well. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just his decision, but he portrayed the pain of that decision. Yeah. Okay, folks, if you haven't seen The Mist, go watch it. Even Stephen King admits Frank Darabon's ending it, is better superior yeah 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 king kind of leaves it up in the air they're just racing off yeah but the mist came out and he was like oh this ending is so much better and you have to trust the guy who says the evil dead is the greatest horror movie ever made yes. or one of them yes well i hate to say this but we're about to run out of time so we oh, are definitely are we? want to have you back again. I would but, um, love Chris, to be uh, back where can again. We see, 
where can we find uh, stuff if we want to know what's going on in the Pacific Northwest? Look under sh- um, all one word, shadowoverportland.blogspot.com. Um, I try to keep it updated as much as I can. Things are happening so much. It's it, I may fall up, you know, I may, you know, miss gonna, a few it, things. It's gonna, you got a lot but, of stuff to go. But, but. If you know of anything, please message me on Facebook. I'm under Chris McMillan. Um, and, you know, just you'll find me. You know, just let me know if there's a theater or a venue that is showing something really cool. Um, because I, the Shadow of Portland doesn't charge. You know, I just find these things and I put them on the website. Or on the blog, um, you know, there's no charge. I'm not charging anyone for advertisement. It's like, no, you've got a horror thing. I'm there. I'm good. I'm putting it on. Well, excellent. And we will definitely, not only I, but Ralph the Rooster will have you back on hopefully <laughs> soon. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I welcome Ralph the Rooster. I, I can't wait for Ralph the Rooster. All right. Well, thank you so much. David, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I, so. I had thank a you. great time talking Lovecraft with you. Oh, thank I love you. I, I love the conversation. I'm so glad that we could record it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so am I. Um Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That was a very good interview. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show, how to support our guests, and thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. And according to Wikipedia, apparently the evil clergyman was co- uh, a complete Lovecraft story. Oh, okay. Written, uh, um, written with no one else. It doesn't have, and it talks about. And it, I didn't, I didn't look this up, but it does say that it was a much more traditional suspense story than his uh, other stuff. Interesting. So I'm not the only one to notice that. Yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, so Dave. Did you want to tee up Dave's Corner this week for us? Hi, this is Dave, and this is my corner. So DB has been kind of cool. He gave me like 15 minutes so that I could talk about anything. We'll see. Maybe I'm pushing the line when it's so much on anything. But today, I am going to talk about how H.P. Lovecraft got into a war with uh, another writer in Letters to the Editors, that actually led to him returning to writing and submitting published work. Cue the theme song.
Ooh, I have my own theme song? This week you do. We'll see if people oh. like it. <laughs> All right. This is Dave's Corner of the Podcast. It is awesome and it's gonna go fast. It's not the interview part. It's not the part where DB talks forever. It's Dave's Corner of the Podcast. Hi, this is Dave of some sort of another. And uh, we're just sort of converting over here from uh, uh, from uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans and Radio Free Oleander uh, back to the original show, The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. And you do not have to be a people to listen to this. And here's some proof. This is my two babies, Solomon and Sonia the Goats. And then here is the newest member of uh, our broadcasting family. You may have heard him recently on my interview with Chris. This very opinionated gentleman has some very strong opinions on H.P. Lovecraft in films. And that is Ralph the Rooster. Everybody give it up for Ralph the Rooster. So, yes, certain things have changed with the show, but one thing that has not changed is the fact that we are broadcasting a good portion of the show from an actual working farm. You tell them, Ralph. So, as people begin to come back from the pandemic, uh, we're going back to what worked well before a pandemic. A lot more people are going to... Are listening to podcasts now that they're, they're traveling back to work. Uh, so we're, we're tweaking things. We're going back with the original title. Now, those of you who have enjoyed the other shows that sort of came out of this, such as Doug's and Radio Free Oleander, we're still going to be covering things like that. You know, I'm still going to tell stories when I get my little 15 minutes here about what might be in the underground Illuminati. Illuminati base underneath my farm, and, you know, we're still going to talk about some of the zany uh, inhabitants of Oleander, Oregon, and just uh, for you, uh, Granny Katatiana, uh, your boys Bjorn and Sen and Sen are doing really well. I, I saw them, you know, they were out there with their their fans and their little red hats uh, trying to stay cool from the heat this morning, so we'll still see some of that. And bluntly, as long as DB is going to give me 15 minutes to talk, I want to talk about whatever I want to talk. But, you know, other than that, uh, so we're not always going to be talking about uh, Lovecraft and the mythos in this 15 minutes. We're not always going to be addressing things to people. You tell them, Ralph. But today we are going to talk a little bit about Lovecraft and the world's greatest troll fight before computers. You know, we all love Lovecraft's writing, but you know, we we I'm not we wouldn't really be a person we want to hang around. 
And I'm not going to defend his, his terrible things, but Lovecraft was definitely an abused child. And he was, his mother was insane. His father was dying from syphilis in an insane asylum. And his beloved grandfather died. And, you know, give Susie Lovecraft her credit. She really tried, but she didn't know how to raise a child. And where she would tell him, you know, you're ugly and only mama loves you because my love you and no one else can love you because you're ugly. She didn't mean that as this mean, manipulative thing. She really thought that, you know, my poor ugly child, only mom loves him and he has to know that his mom loves him. So HBL was pretty messed up. He would have been a perfect troll. So he is those trolls we see now living in their mother's cellar on the internet. Uh, this is the time where he got sort of his right-wing political views. Uh, and exactly like trolls today. Um, but he didn't have the internet. What they did have was the pulps. And one of his favorite was Argosy Magazine. Uh, I think we've talked about, me and DB have talked about Argosy, but this was the first of the pulp magazines, meaning that they started using pulp paper, cheap paper, so they could reduce the printing price so that they could put larger, you know, larger books, more stories in the hands of more people. You know, I think their, their motto was, you know, a dollar's worth of stories for a dime. So using this new cheap pulp technology, they put out a lot of stories. Some of them which weren't worth the pulp that they were printed on. Um, and one of these was Frederick J. Jackson. Now, in a lot of ways, Frederick J. Jackson would have disappeared into obscurity if it wasn't for his troll war, flare war, whatever you want to call it, between him and Lovecraft. Uh, in fact, I spent 30, 45 minutes online and I could not find a single picture that had survived. I'm sure they're out there, but I couldn't find them. And, and honestly, not to toot my own horn, my research food is pretty good. I'm pretty good about finding things on the internet. And I cannot find a picture, picture of Frederick J. Jackson. Um, now, there are later ones, such as the football player, uh, Frederick Jackson Turner, who is a historian. So, but I couldn't find a picture of this Frederick J. Jackson we were looking for. Um, so he was a writer, and he wrote an Argosy. Ironically, I was exposed to Jackson before I was exposed to Lovecraft. Jackson wrote, as he grew older in the 40s, he moved to Hollywood, and he wrote a screenplay, and include Wells Fargo, which is the story of, you know, the Wells Fargo, the banks, the stagecoaches, and their security people. You know, and I grew up, you know, 70s, 80s, in the later, uh, or in the greater L.A. market, and so they were always running uh, westerns during this time, uh, black and white westerns. And, and I must have seen Wells Fargo three times. So, and that was like maybe when I was like nine. 
I didn't come to Lovecraft until I was 13. So, yeah, I actually was exposed to Jackson before I was Lovecraft. Jackson's probably most famous story uh, was a play he wrote. It's called The Bishop Misbehaves, and it's about a, a Church of England bishop who basically gets involved in this crime and has to solve it. And it's sort of a romantic comedy, and we, we see this later in shows, you know, uh, where priests and you know nuns are, are involved in crimes. Um, better served, I mean, better received in the United States and in England, even though the play first was do done in England. But um, so he and MTM would make this into a movie. So Jackson had more success in the forties than Lovecraft did. So Jackson would write these melodramatic stories uh, and admit signally sweet stories that would appear in Argosy. So not having the internet, Lovecraft would type back as usually as HBL, but sometimes it's Lovecraft, you know, his full name, and he would tear this the stories apart. And he would use his verbose use of vocabulary to just rip apart Jackson. It's just mean spirited. And he was, you know, in his 20s, early 20s, just almost juvenile, how juvenile Lovecraft was at the time. And Jackson had his fans back then. Even though now he's almost completely drifted into obscurity, he had his fans then. And one of them wrote back and said in the next issue they printed, because uh, all these would be printed in the, the letters to the editor, and after he just tore apart one of uh, one of Jackson's stories, uh, one of Jackson's friends wrote back and says, you know, I'll pay you 15 cents HBL a month if you just stop reading these things and just stop writing in. And, and another one wrote this little poem about how, you know, oh, Lovecraft says he's going to write a book, ha, ha, ha. We're all going to have to buy the newest copy of the dictionary to understand his big words. Um, so it really became sort of this, this flame war. And the editors of Argosy encouraged this. They printed it because people were buying their magazines just to read these, these letters of the editors, these attacks to each other. Just like, you know, fights on the internet now are done in, this, in front of this humongous audience. So was this battle between Lovecraft and fans of Fred Jackson. And one of the people who caught attention to this was Edward Doss. Now, Edward Doss is the head at the time in, in 1913 of the um, United Amateur Press Association. And he tracks Lovecraft down. And he says, you, you've got talent. I love this way that you're dissing Jackson. Why don't you write more? And for three years or so, you know, Lovecraft liked this. He liked the publicity that he was getting. And so he would write. And then within four years, he's encouraged to go back to fiction. So in 1917, he writes the 
first of what is often considered the mythos stories, Dagon. And the truth is, Lovecraft would have been unknown to us. He would not have written what he had written if it was not for Doss, but also if he hadn't had this public flame war with Jackson. Not only would we not have heard of Lovecraft, he would never have written the things that we remember him for. So, um, that's today's little part of Dave's Corner here. Now, um, I hope you enjoyed it. But if you didn't, go ahead and write into the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and write a poem about how terrible I am and how awful I am. And who knows, maybe in 107 years or so, people will be celebrating you. My name is David Heath, also known as Farmer Dave, and I'm returning you to your regularly scheduled People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Oh wow, that was that was really good, Dave. That was I, I like that. That was that was fun. It was funny. It was interesting. It kept me captivated. That was well, thank that, you. I, uh, you know, and. and yeah, we kind of think we all know Lovecraft has problems. Yeah, but we think of him like after he got over the, this terrible living in his mother's basement sort of thing, uh, sort of the older Lovecraft. But yeah, the guy was a troll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we love him, but he was a troll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Um, you you don't have to. You can you can like people's work, uh, and not like the people. <laughs> I mean, and you can choose not to like people's work and not like the people. Uh, I don't check out Louis C.K.'s stuff. I didn't like him beforehand, though. So. <laughs> anyway, we're not talking comedy. We're talking literature and genre horror. <laughs> so uh, let's see. Uh, up next, we've got a little bit of stuff with some natural disasters for this week's reading and yeah uh we'll see you all next week so enjoy please please return <laughs> enjoy enjoy the reading and if uh, you're using this to uh, fall asleep good sleep well if you're using this to help with your commute i hope you get to work on time and welcome back to the workforce and if you've been in the workforce the whole time uh, high five. Same here. Uh, same. Same with Dave. And uh, thanks again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This has been the July first week of July, two thousand twenty-one. Thank you so much. Written parts written by David Heath. Everything else improvised by DB and Dave. Music by DB Spitzer. Edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer at the KZOM facilities in Oleander, Oregon. Thank you so much. Weird fiction, gothic horror, spooky stuff, and this week, this month, true stuff, true horrors of natural disasters and stuff like that. So check that out. 
And if you want to find out what we've done in the past, if you're uh, one of those folks who loves hurricanes and you just checked out the show to listen to the episode on hurricanes and tornadoes, well, guess what? We don't have anything else on hurricanes and tornadoes, but we have all kinds of stuff on spooky monsters and ghost stories and things like that. And if you like us and you already know what this is about, check us out on Facebook. We talk about other stuff there, too. All right. Thank you so much. Black Clock Audio Tales, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, Radio Free Oleander, starts now. Rate, review, subscribe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. Just look for Black Clock Audio Tales. Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby. Preface. Whatever be the ideas of the public upon a glance at the title page of this work, it is not intended to pander to the morbid desire for the sensational or horrible characteristic of weak minds. This volume is not a literary morgue. Mankind is constantly astonished by reports of mishaps and disasters of manifold character, when there is seldom room for astonishment. A large proportion of the calamities reported from day to day are directly due to the haste, greed, and heedlessness of man himself, and need no comment. But there is a large class of disasters due solely to meteorological or geological conditions which surpass all others in magnitude and appalling destruction. In such cases, men insist on prating about mysterious visitations, as though these occurrences were subject to the dominion of no law. To an examination of such is this book devoted. When in school, the writer was often struck by the persistence with which even the most diligent students would call upon the teachers of physics and chemistry to suspend the recitation and devote the time to illustrative experiments. Physical geography was constantly pronounced very dry because of the scarcity of opportunities for illustration. The writer has endeavored to present, in a form acceptable to the popular palate, the general principles of the storm and earthquake so far as they are understood, and numerous narratives of great disturbances have been inserted that a clearer conception of the magnitude of these agencies and their relative importance may be attained by the reader. Much care has been spent in steering between Scylla and Charybdis. While it has been designed to avoid merely scientific data, there has been the equally delicate task of avoiding prolix narration and mere sensational tales. It is hoped that the result will be useful and interesting. If the book shall lead the reader to higher views of the reign of inexorable law in nature and to a profounder reverence for the author of law and his works, the labor of its compilation will not have been spent in vain. A. H. Godby End of Preface Great Disasters and Horrors in the World's History by Alan H. Godby Myths of the Winds Grey in his mossy cave, Aeolus stood, gazing in reverie at the distant sails that skimmed the surface of the glassy deep. 
Unvexed by blasts of Eurus's boisterous whims, the restless winds in leash about their lord, full often murmuring, plucked his floating robe, or stirred his tangled tresses with their breath, impatient at the lack of wilder liberty. Oh, sang the bard of the fabled cave of the winds. Thus the old Romans and Greeks have taught us to think and to speak of the spirits of the air. Thus the very name of spirit was originally identical with breath or wind. Those poetic old Hellenes, they contrived to find something delightfully human in all the phenomena of nature. The woods were peopled with fauns and dryads. Around the bend of yonder rushy stream, a wary woodsman found a bathing nymph. Beyond that rock, Actaeon saw the chaste Diana sporting in the crystal pool. Here is the spot where baffled Phoebus found his Daphne changed into a laurel tree. See you those stately poplars by the side of Italy's stream? There, Phaethon's mourning sisters changed their fleshly robes for those green spires. From their waving boughs the cry of the kingfisher, Alcyone, reminds us that halcyon days may yet be in store for the most unfortunate. The response hurled back from yonder cliff warns us to drop a tear for the poor nymph Echo, whose unrequited love caused her to pine away till only a voice was left. To this day she answers every call, hoping to yet meet her love. That flaunting yellow flower is sprung from that very Narcissus, who was so handsome that he fell in love with himself. Ten thousand egotistic beauties of later days have not met so happy a fate. Hark, was that the seashell of Triton? Neptune approaches with his Nea train. You may see the plunge of his dolphin steeds. And see, what vision of incomparable loveliness is that? It is Aphrodite, goddess of love, sprung from the foam of the sea, as fragile as the fleecy mass from whence she came, as inconstant as the tossing wave on which she dances. How can love be otherwise, since she is its queen? In the sky above you see the beautiful Andromeda with the radiant Perseus. There Hercules yet wields his club and wears his lion skin, and there... It is vanished. The disenchantment is complete. Modern civilization has replaced the nymph with the peasant and the fawn with the brigand. The pipe of Pan is forever silent. Marcius is revenged, for Apollo is no more. Jupiter dethroned Saturn. Jupiter has long since been dethroned. Where are the hands that pen those beauteous fancies? The bards that sung the deeds of the gods. Dust and ashes these two thousand years. Their works live after them. Passing centuries have not improved upon their lovely fantasies. It may be because they could not. Rome has named the months of our year. Norway has aided to name the days of our week. Easter preserves the name of Astara, Teuton goddess of springtime, of new life new light. So the names of the winds remain. Auster, the south wind, has his memorial in Australia. Zephyr, the gentle west wind, is still a theme for poet's song. Rude Boreas, blustering railer, will always find a home in the north. 
civilization has not driven him from his domain Aeolus, the master spirit, most powerful because most delicate and beautiful, still stirs our wind harps with his breath. The spirits of the air are as boisterous and untamed as in the days of Aeneas. And what figures would appeal more strongly to the imagination than these simple personifications? how can too great importance be attached to the part the winds perform in the economy of nature without them the land would become a sahara the seas would be covered with a london fog in the rustle of the breeze as well as the roar of a hurricane there is purpose and energy the hand that guides one controls the other he holdeth the wind in his fists in every age man's imagination has been strongly influenced by the mysterious or unknown there is little play for poetic sentiment in the cold practicality of science that which is clearly comprehended loses half its charm the botanist carefully plucks to pieces a flower it is analyzed and all its mechanism understood but it is no longer a flower the alchemist has produced the wonderful science of chemistry but the philosopher's stone and the secret of producing gold are forever numbered among the shadowy myths of the past the explorer has roamed in countless climes amid a myriad perils a thousand treasures has he given to the world but his el dorado and the fountain of perpetual youth have become as a dream in the night and thus for I will phantoms vanish as we grasp. Truth bears a magic wand at whose touch the unreal dies as a snowflake in a flame. All time has borne its legends of the risen departed, whose spirits roam the earth by night. But we have not proved that the dead have done in six thousand years so much evil as the living in a single day so one by one our cherished fables disappear the steam engine seems a thing of life but we don't find a hidden genie therein electricity one of the youngest of man's practical discoveries has become the most easily controlled the bolts of jove are the prisoners of man the river is harnessed to the mill and factory but the winds roam as free as in the day of creation when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of god shouted for joy of all the forces of nature the wind and sea are the least beneath control of man the command subdue and have dominion has not yet been fully obeyed small wonder then that a glamour of mysticism remains about the storm and its birth man finds himself in the presence of a power beyond his comprehension of the various elements of nature the wind the sea and the storm are more than ever the realm of fancy and awe one often wonders at many other ancient myths but there seems nothing surprising in the grecian fancy that the winds were the spirit slaves of aeolus or in the arabian thought that storms were but the battles of wonderful genie whose weapons were fire water and their own powerful breath in the crash of thunder the arab heard their terrible strokes 
the Northman beheld giants contending now with each other, now with the giants of frost or of fire, now resting a moment in their cavern home, and now chasing the clouds like frightened sheep from their realm of mistime. Some day all these powers would be arrayed in battle with the gods themselves, and Ragnarok, or universal chaos, would follow. God made man in his own image. Man has ever since endeavored to make all things in his own. And so have the winds become personified in every age and land. Charles Kingsley has given us a beautiful picture of the air mothers and the part they play in the realm of nature. Compare the ancient with the modern. We now know the laws and the work of the winds but we have not found a better manner of picturing them. They are still the beautiful spirits of the air, the peeries of the upper deep, faultless in life, weeping repentant tears in the hour of their death. Who are these who follow us softly over the moor in the autumn evening? Their wings brush and rustle in the fir boughs, and they whisper before and behind us, as if they call gently to each other, like birds flocking homeward to their nests. The woodpecker on the pine stems knows them, and laughs aloud for joy as they pass. The rooks above the pasture know them, and wheel around and tumble in their play. The brown leaves on the oak tree know them, and flutter faintly, and beckon as they pass. In the chattering of the dry leaves there is a meaning and a cry of weary things longing for rest. Take us home, take us home, you soft air mothers. Now our fathers, the sunbeams are grown dull. Our green summer beauty is all draggled, and our faces are grown wan and thin, and the buds, the ungrateful children whom we nourished, thrust us off from our seats. Waft us down you soft air mothers upon your wings to the quiet earth that we may go to our home as all things go and become air and sunlight once again the bold young fir seeds know them and rattle impatiently in their cones blow more strongly blow more fiercely slow air mothers and shake us from our prisons of dead wood that we may fly and spur away northeastward each on his horny wing we will dive like arrows through the heather and drive our sharp beaks into the soil and rise again as green trees toward the sunlight and spread out lusty boughs. They never think, bold fools, of what is coming to bring them low in the midst of their pride, of the restless axe which will fell them and saws which will shape them into logs, and the trains which will roar and rattle over them as they lie buried in the gravel of the way till they are ground and rattled into powder and dug up and flung upon the fire, that they too may return home like all things and become air and sunlight once again. The air mothers hear their prayers and do their bidding, but faintly, for they themselves are tired and sad, and their garments rent and worn. Ah, how different were those soft air mothers when, invisible to mortal eyes, they started on their long sky journey five thousand miles across the sea. Out of the blazing cauldron which lies between the two new worlds they leaped up, 
when the great sun called them in whirls and spouts of clear hot steam and rushed to the northward while the whirling earth ball whirled them east so northeastward they rushed aloft across the gay west indian isles having below the glitter of the flying fish and the sidelong eyes of cruel sharks above the cane fields and the plantain gardens and the coconut groves which fringed the shore above the rocks which throbbed with earthquakes and the peaks of old volcanoes cinder-strewn while far beneath the ghosts of their dead sisters hurried homeward on the northeast breeze wild deeds they did as they rushed onward and struggled and fought amongst themselves up and down and round and backward in the fury of their blind hot youth they tired themselves by struggling with each other and by tearing the heavy water into waves and their wings grew clogged with sea spray and soaked more and more with steam at last the sea grew cold beneath them and their clear steam sank to mist and they saw themselves and each other wrapped in dull rain-laden clouds then they drew their white cloud garments around them and veiled themselves for very shame and they said we have been wild and wayward and alas our pure youth is gone but we will do one good deed yet before we die and so we shall not have lived in vain we will glide onward to the land and weep there and refresh all things with warm soft rain and make the grass grow and the buds burst we will quench the thirst of man and beast and wash the soiled world clean so they are wandering past us the earth mothers to weep the leaves into their graves to weep the seeds into their seed beds and to weep the soil into the plains to get the rich earth ready for the winter and then creep northward and die there but will they live again those chilled air mothers yes they must live again for all things move forever and not even ghosts can rest the corpses of their sisters piling on them from above press them onward press them southward toward the sun once more across the flows and round the icebergs weeping tears of snow and sleet while men hate their wild harsh voices and shrink before their bitter breath they know not that the cold bleak snowstorms as they hurtle from the black northeast bear back the ghosts of the soft air mothers as penitents to their father the great sun but as they fly southward warm life thrills them and they drop their loads of sleet and snow and meet their young live sisters from the south and greet them with flash and thunder peal men call them the southwest wind those air mothers and their ghosts the northeast trade and value them and rightly because they bear the traders out and back across the sea and so they live and so they die those beautiful air mothers for life is evermore fed by death and in their wayward course they bring the early and the latter rain for so long as time shall be seed time and harvest and summer and winter shall not fail and men love them and welcome each in their turn whether laden with the pure white snow or the cooling moisture of the distant sea for man is a fickle creature and remains constant to none 
in summer he sings of the arctic winds and in winter he longs for the breath of the south for like the air mothers his course is ever onward seeking that which he has not yet sometimes in his discontent he would curse the soft air mothers but without them he could not live but the bard knows them all and will sing of their deeds till the sun waxes cold with the weight of years End of chapter 1Dave, can you say goodbye? Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. This episode was brought to you by patrons and listeners like you. You can go to the show notes and find out how to support the show, how to buy t-shirts, stickers, and all that kind of fun stuff. If you want to get on the show, if you've got something you want to let the world know about that's Cthulhu mythos related or tangential or tentacle i don't know uh contact dave heath david heath will be the person to talk to if you've got you know uh audio that you want to send in i'm the person to talk to if you've got video if you've got uh images if you've got stickers not stickers um if you have illustrations i've got stickers contact me thank you so much pgttcm.com Later days, beauties.